Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And our text verses are really going to be verses 4 through 8, although we're not going to get all the way through all of these verses this morning, and then this afternoon we're going to finish out uh, the other verses. So our, our text for this morning is really verses 4 through 6, and then this afternoon you need to come back and we'll, con- we'll finish with verses 7 and 8 uh, this afternoon. But I want to direct your attention here. There's some great verses in the Word of God, especially concerning Jesus Christ and It's our desire to exalt Him and point to Him uh, always, Uh, but today through the Word of God, uh, let's look to the Word of God and exalt the Lord. Verse 4, the Bible says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from Him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before His throne And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sin in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us with your word this morning and Lord, that you'd also give me of your grace, Lord, to be able to expound on your word. And Father, I pray for the Spirit of God to control my speech. Father, for the Spirit of God to have free course in every heart this morning as well. And Lord, that Christ would truly be magnified here. Use your word to bring about your will. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Revelation uh, is addressed to seven churches in Asia. We find that in verse 4, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. Uh, they were specific churches. You can read out and through the next few chapters uh, these specific churches that John is talking to. And yet these churches are selected as representatives of all the churches. There are seven of them. The number seven in the Bible being the number of completion. Notice as well that, uh, by the way, I'm going to work my way through these portions here rather quickly. I want to just briefly comment as we unpack these verses here, briefly comment on them because I'm working my way down to the last part of verse five. And we're going to focus in mainly on that thought Uh, that Jesus Christ washed us from our sin. He loved us, washed us from our sin with his own blood. We're going to park right there for uh, for the message. But we need to uh, give some context. So I want to just unpack these verses, and I'll briefly comment on them, working our way there. So John writes to these seven churches which are in Asia, specific churches and yet representative of all churches. 
Asia was one of the provinces of the Roman Empire. And if you don't know what a province is, I mean, look at the country of Canada, for example. Uh, you know, in the United States, we have 50 states. Uh, provinces are regions that cover a lot of territory. Asia was one of the provinces of the Roman Empire. It was located on the western portion of what is today referred to as Asia Minor. The capital of Asia was Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the churches uh, that John wrote to. It included the territories of Bithynia, Galatia, Pisidia, Macedonia, all terms or all places that you, if you're familiar with the Bible, you've heard of before. The point that's being made here, though, is that there were many churches in those regions. Even though it's written to seven particular churches, it's representative of all. And there were many churches in that region. For example, Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 2. Multiple, plural, the churches of Galatia. Paul spoke of the churches of Macedonia in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1. Philippi was one of those well-known churches of Macedonia and so on. So these selected Seven churches are actually representative of all churches. And then that's some introductory type information for you. What I really want to tell you is that there's some great truth in these verses, though, regarding Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the center of this book, certainly. Jesus Christ is the center of the Word of God as a whole. Jesus Christ is the center even of all creation and Jesus Christ ought to be, and He wants to be, the center of your life. And so we're going to talk about Jesus Christ today. Amen? Amen? And the title of the message this morning is, To Him That Loved Us. To Him That Loved Us. The first thing that I want to draw your attention to is found in verse 4. Verse 4, John writes to these churches and he says this. He says, Grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before the throne, his throne, and from Jesus Christ. The first thing I want to draw your attention to is grace and peace to the believers. John says, grace and peace be unto you. Grace and peace be unto you. This is a description of the believer's new position in Jesus Christ before God. Grace and peace is a position that we have through Jesus Christ before God. Before we're saved, we are separated from God. We are under condemnation because of our sin. According to Romans 1 and verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men. All we are is unrighteous. All we are is sinful. We're alienated from God, we're enemies from God, we're separated from God, we're under condemnation. According to Romans 5 and verse 10, we are alienated or enemies from God who need to be reconciled to God. There's no peace there. In Christ Jesus, though, all of that is changed. And we have grace and peace in our life through Jesus Christ the blessing that is encompassed in these two short words 
is incalculable. I can't really even describe for you in, in great detail or word the blessing of grace in our life or the blessing of peace that comes from Jesus Christ. And again, we're just going to comment briefly on these. But grace, what is grace? Grace is something that is free. Grace, its definition is unmerited or unearned or undeserved favor from God. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We can't work for it. There's nothing good about us that would merit favor with God. Grace is something that is free from God. It's a gift because of Christ. Grace is without works. It's a gift that was purchased though, by Christ's blood. Looking in Romans chapter 11, just briefly, to understand, listen, we really do need the Lord and the Spirit of God to help us to just get a, a grasp, even just a little bit, of what grace is and what it is in my life, the blessing it is to me and you. Romans eleven six 6 says, And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. In other words, what Paul is saying is it can't be both. It's all of God or none of it is of God. The very definition itself clarifies that. And Ephesians 2 and verse 8 says, For by grace are we saved unearned, unmerited favor. It is the grace of God. We don't deserve to be saved. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We should never, ever think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We should never, ever think that somehow we deserve salvation from the Lord. It's grace. Grace also means divine enabling. It's divine favor, unmerited favor, but it also means divine enabling. That's something that God works in us after we're saved. His grace, His enabling in our life to, 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 to grow, to, to function. Listen, listen, the grace of God is what makes a person brand new in salvation. Before, when you're, when you're addicted to pornography and you're addicted to alcohol or addicted to drugs or any other thing, the grace of God is what comes in and transforms your life. It makes you brand new. We can't really describe the blessing of grace. And then even beyond that, John says grace and peace to you. Peace means that we've been reconciled to God because of Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 5 with me. Romans chapter 5. Draw your attention down to verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That in itself tells us that before Christ or without Christ, we are not at peace with God. We're enemies of God. And peace 
means that we've been reconciled to God. We're no longer enemies of God because of sin. Grace comes before peace. Why? It's God's grace in Jesus Christ that brings the believer into a position of peace with God. Having peace with God, friend, is the only way to actually have peace in your life. Real peace in your life. What do you want? Do you want, do you want misery? Do you want discomfort? Do you want agitation? Who wants that in their life? No, we want comfort, don't we? We want peace. We want settledness. We want that feeling in our life. And friend, the only way to have peace is to have peace with God. But there's a lot of people who are searching for real peace. They want it in their soul. Many times people are tormented souls, but they don't want to admit that. And they're searching for peace. That might be the reason that there are alcoholics, because they're trying to find something that will cure the misery or, or calm the storm inside of their soul, or drug addicts, or porn addicts, or any other life-controlling vice. They're missing something in their life. They're looking to other things to fill that emptiness, but it only leads to being enslaved. How many even in this room this morning are not at peace in your soul? Some, if you ask them if they had peace in their life, they'd say, oh yeah, I love my life. But the reality is they're not happy. If there was honesty, there would be the truth that comes out that they're not happy. They exist. They get by. But they're not truly peaceful or happy. And the only way to find freedom and the only way to find true peace in life is to have peace with God. Having your sins forgiven through Christ. Are you saved today? Do you know for sure? Is there peace in your soul because of the grace of God that has brought peace to your life? Grace and peace only come from God. Well, how do we know that? Well, look back in our text in Revelation chapter 1. We know that because the Word of God tells us here, grace and peace only come from God. And we know that because all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned here. Look at verse 4 again. Grace and peace unto you from Here's where it comes from. Him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before the, His throne, and from Jesus Christ. Grace and peace only come from God. And all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned here. Notice, first of all, God the Father. He says in verse 4 that grace and peace is from Him which is, and which was, and which is to come. This is a description of God's eternality. There never was a time when God did not exist. There never will be a time when He ceases to exist. He was, He is, He is to come. He's eternal. This is God the Father. Isaiah 40 and verse 28 says, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God... The Lord, 
the creator of the ends of the earth. He fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. But then you have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. It comes from God the Father. And then the last part of verse 4, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Capital S there. The Holy Spirit, the seven spirits which are before the throne. This passage makes it clear that the Spirit of God is a separate person of the Godhead, not merely an influence of God, but He's a person. Notice the term, the seven spirits which are before the throne. You need to understand that this is a symbolic term in reference to the Spirit of God, and it can be explained by comparing Scripture with Scripture. What does it mean, the seven spirits of God? Well, we know, first of all, that there's only one Holy Spirit. 1 John 5 and verse 7 says, For there are three that bear record in one, in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. What Revelation 1-4 is depicting, it's depicting the work and the office of the Spirit of God using symbolic language. That same description is used in Revelation chapter 3 in verse 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. In chapter 4 in verse 5, and out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunders and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. In chapter 5, in verse 6, <clears throat> And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. That's figurative language that's being used here, and it refers to the following things, and it further demonstrates that the Spirit is God as well. It demonstrates the omniscience of the Holy Spirit. That's what we see in chapter 4 and verse 5, and also chapter 5 in verse 6. In Revelation 4, 5, the seven spirits are likened to lamps of fire, which speak of illumination or enlightening. And it refers to the Holy Spirit who gives wisdom, who gives understanding to, to all of creation concerning the things of God. In chapter 5 and verse 6, the seven spirits are sent forth into all the earth. It refers to the Holy Spirit being present everywhere on earth. It also refers to the offices of the Holy Spirit of God. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11. Back in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 11. And again, we're, we're briefly commenting on these, working our way to where we really want to be for the rest of the message here. But in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2, this verse has frequently been used to cross-reference the seven spirits of God. In, in chapter 11 and verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord 
shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. The point, though, that it really needs to be made of this verse is that the Holy Spirit is made known in his offices and in his characteristics. And that's what's being presented in Revelation 1 and verse 4. But now go back to our text, please. Because we have God the Father, and again, grace and peace only comes from God. We know that because all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned. He which was, he which, uh, excuse me, from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, from the seven spirits which are before the throne, in verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. And from Jesus Christ. And the rest of the verse depicts Jesus Christ in four ways. Notice this. From Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. First of all, Jesus is depicted as the faithful witness. He is the perfect witness of God in all things that pertain to God. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is the perfect image and description of God. Verse 1 says, God who at sundry times, that means various times, and in divers manners, it means in different ways, different manners, spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. So God spoke to men in various ways and in different kinds, or various times, and in different kinds of ways unto the fathers by the prophets. But verse 2 says, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So the Bible tells us that God used to speak to men at various times and in different ways, but now He speaks to us through His Son. And His Son is the brightness of His glory. His Son is the express image of His person. You understand God and the character of God? You look at Jesus Christ. You look at His character. You look at His life. You look at who He is. You understand who God is. He's the faithful witness, the perfect witness of God. But he's also the first begotten from the dead, according to verse 5. The first begotten from the dead, it depicts Christ's resurrection as the firstfruits of them that slept or who had died. And it signifies that others are coming after him. Amen? When he comes at the rapture, those who've died in Christ, they're going to be resurrected. If you happen to live for the return of the Lord or the rapture, you're going to be caught up in the clouds together with them. 
those who've gone on, those who've died. He's the first begotten of the dead. But then notice this, he's the prince of the kings of the earth. He's the prince of the kings of the earth. Only by him, only by him, do rulers of this world have their authority. Amen? That ought to be comforting to us. This world is getting more and more crazy all the time. And we're going to talk more about this in the afternoon service. And all the things that are currently happening and where it could lead and what it could do. But you know what? Governments of the world are jockeying for position, for control, all the time. I just heard that President Joe Biden just made a deal with Iran and lifted all of the sanctions against their nuclear program, lifted every single one of them. And there are no restrictions and no sanctions upon Iran in their nuclear program. Iran is the, is the, is the mother of all terrorists in this world. They are the destabilizers of the Middle East. There's no doubt about it. And this Syrian man who was talking about this, basically what he said was, this is terrible for the Middle East. And the road to war is now completely wide open. And of course, Israel's not going to stand by and let this happen. Israel's going to do what it needs to do to defend itself. And all I'm saying is that the world is moving more and more into chaos. Governments are jockeying for position. But Jesus Christ is the prince of the kings of the earth, and only by him do any rulers have their authority. He allows it for now. But friend, the day is coming when he is going to rule and reign. Amen. That ought to be comforting to the child of God who looks around and sees all the crazy. But the last description of Jesus Christ and where we're going to spend the rest of our time is right here. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. He is the one that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. This is probably one of the most important and precious verses in all of the Bible because it summarizes for us and describes the marvelous thing that Jesus Christ has done for you. What did He do? What does the Bible say that He did? Well, first of all, it tells us that He loved us. This statement don't pass over it. Don't read over it and not try to mentally comprehend this thought. Okay? We do that a lot, don't we? Pick up our Bible, we read some words on a page, and we just kind of pass right on over that, and we don't grab the full meaning of what is being described to us here. He loved us! That was the very motivation for dying on the cross in the first place. Certainly, He came to obey the Father. Certainly, He came to glorify the Father. 
He came to fulfill God's eternal plan for salvation, but He also came because He loved sinners and He desired to save them. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He's the great shepherd, the great shepherd of the soul, the one that was willing to leave the 99 and go out and seek after the one lost one. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. We say, okay, great, Pastor, I understand that He loved us. But think about this. Think about who He is. And think about what you and I are. Where was He before He came to earth? He was in heaven. He was glorified. He was magnified. He is Jesus Christ who is God. He received the glory that is due Him in in perfectness and fullness in heaven. And what did He do? The Bible says in Philippians 2 and verse 7 that He made Himself of no reputation. And He took upon Himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Why would he leave heaven's glory? Why would he do that? And what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him. Listen again, friend, listen. We think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. We are sinners. We are vile. We are wretched. We're aliens from God. And God, because in Jesus, because He loved you, left all of heaven's glory. Why would He do that? And then why would He choose to be born in a place where animals are kept? When He came to this earth. Why would he do that? This is the king, the king of all the universe, the king of creation. And there wasn't found a place for him. Why would he do that? And why when he lived this life, 33 years on this earth, and especially as an adult, why would he live poor and homeless and no place to lay his head? Why would he do that? Why would he take the time to heal blind men and beggars? Why would he take the time to to spend with with the outcast? And and why would he take the time even to to, uh, uh, have conversation with the Pharisees who hated him? Why would he suffer that kind of betrayal like Judas? Why would he be beaten and bruised? And why would he let himself have his beard pulled out and a crown of thorns put on his head? Why would he walk up Calvary's hill? Why would he do that? Why would he suffer agony and death on the cross? Why would he let nails drive into his hands and to his feet? And spill his blood and give his life willingly. 
Why would he be forsaken of his father and cry out in agony, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why would he, the one who knew no sin, become sin for us? Listen, friend. It was for me. Because he loved me. Do you understand that? He loved us. He loved us. That's what caused him to leave heaven's glory. That's what caused him to suffer betrayal. That's what caused him to walk up Calvary's hill. That's what caused him to give his life, to shed his blood. It was love for me, the one. You know, we speak of love. We understand what love is. We understand it to the degree that, you know, we would be willing to give our lives even for one that we loved. What causes a mother to, to suffer extreme anguish or pain or give her own life for her child? Every mother that I know who's a loving mother would do the very same thing. Or every father. We understand that. What would cause you to go through that? It's extreme love. And multiply that times infinity with God's love for undeserving people and sinners. That's what I'm saying. So undeserving. Grace and love. That is beyond our comprehension. It ought, to, it ought to strike our heart with humility. I don't know how, my friend, I, 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 don't know how you, I don't know how you're responding today. I don't. I don't. But I can't, I can't think about this and read this and then begin to think about Christ and not be moved in my soul. I don't deserve anything from God except for death. But he loved me. And I'm here today. And I'm saved. And my life is changed all because of his great love wherewith he loved me when I was dead in sin. Listen, I was a God-hater. And yet he did that for me. Listen. There are people who talk of God's love, but, you know, God loves the elect, those that he's chosen. There's a lot of people who try to teach that. As if somehow, somehow I'm deserving, I'm chosen of God. John 3.16 says he loved the world. Amen. 1 Timothy 2.6 says that he gave himself a ransom for all. Hebrews 2.9 says that he tasted death for every man. No matter what you've done, no matter where you are in your life, no matter what things that you're hiding that you don't want anybody to know, God loves you and His grace far exceeds your guilt and your sin. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, because He loves you. 
And he wants to wash away all of that sin. As a side note, not really part of the message, but it's a truth that we need to remember, especially now. Ephesians 4.32 says, And be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And what we need to keep in mind is that our offense to God, because of who we are and what we are as sinners, our offense to God is so much greater than any offense that anybody else could ever perpetrate against us. And God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven me? How then do I have the right to not be forgiving of others? Think on it. Meditate on it. It's not easy. Because hurts are real. But when you compare it to what God has done for me, and when you compare it to the fact that I am so undeserving of God's love, all of a sudden it becomes a lot easier to forgive. Because He did. And what He's done to me. Amen? Look at Ephesians 2. Again, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, verse 4. The Bible says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us or made us alive together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. This is what He did. Because of His mercy, because of His grace, because of His great love wherewith He loved us, that even when we were dead in sin. And God can't even look at sin. He's of pure eyes that He can't even behold sin. And that's all I am. And yet He hath made me alive together with Christ because of His grace. He loved us. And I wish that I could get it across to you adequately, but maybe it's only the Spirit of God that can do that. But this is what Jesus Christ did. He loved us. And then the second thing is that He washed us from our sin in His own blood. It was the blood that made the difference. It was the blood that made the atonement for sin. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no remission of sin. Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who fulfilled all the Old Testament types that were found in the sacrificial systems and the shedding of the blood of animals. Jesus Christ was that Lamb. And by Jesus' blood, we are first of all justified. 
Romans 3 and verse 25 says, Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. That word propitiation typically means an appeasement. In other words, uh, and, and what is it an appeasement of? God hath set forth Jesus Christ to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. God's wrath is against sin. God's anger is against sin. God is just in His dealings. God's going to judge every sin. God's anger and wrath needs to be appeased. And God set forth His Son, Jesus Christ, to be that propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. You know what it means to be justified? The word justified means to declare righteous. It basically means this, in the eyes of God, because of because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we are justified. In the eyes of God, it's just as if I'd never sinned. That's what it looks like in the eyes of God. Not only have we been declared righteous in spite of our obvious guilt, we've also received the very righteousness of God. And by trusting in the blood, which has propitiated God's just demands against sin, God has shown Himself to not only be just, but also to be the one who's doing the justifying, the declaring of righteousness. Not only are we justified, but we are saved from wrath because of the blood. Romans 5.8 says, But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. You know what that word wrath means? It has the idea of anger that is exhibited in punishment or the punishment itself. It was used of the sentence of a judge. The judge would issue a sentence uh, regarding the guilty party, the guilty person. And here it undoubtedly refers to the wrath of God's judgment against sin. In other words, because... Because of the justification that stems from the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we are saved from that judgment. Does that make sense? What is the judgment? The lake of fire, ultimately. We're saved from the wrath of God on our sin because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. It means to suppress the truth. John 3.18, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. And verse 36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Today, 
I am free from the wrath of God because he loved me and he washed me from my sin in his own blood. What a blessing! Not only that, but we have redemption. Ephesians 1.7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. The word redemption alludes to how God, through Christ's blood, purchased us back from the bondage of sin. I'm no longer a slave to sin and never to return. Amen? Because of the blood. But you know what else we have? We have peace because of the blood. Colossians 1.20 says, And having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself. By Him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled in the body of His flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. We have had peace. We've been, uh, peace has been made with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that brings us full circle. We started talking about how grace and peace unto you. We started talking about how you get peace in your life. Real peace only comes through knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You can know Him. Not just in word, not just in theory, not in abstract. You can know Him personally. What you got to do is you got to repent. Change your mind about life, about sin. What you need to do is ask Him to forgive you and accept His free gift of salvation, putting your faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. Salvation is repentance toward God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God is, I understand what I am that I only deserve death and wrath because I'm a sinner and I offend God. And I don't want to be me and I don't want to do that. I'm sorry for my offense to you. That's a changing of the mind and a changing of the heart about what I am and who I am and understanding my offense toward God. It's repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ. Oh, faith toward Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in what about Jesus Christ? That he shed his blood for me. And only his blood can actually wash away all of my guilt and all of my sin and give me peace with God. It's a free gift by his grace. Then you can know true peace. Then you can know that you're right with God who is holy and righteous. Then you can know that when you leave this world, heaven will be there.
home. I think that's pretty amazing. It's pretty awe-inspiring. It's pretty humbling. The last part of our text verse, if you look at it, it says, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Why? Because he's God. Because he loved us. Because he washed us from our sin in his own blood. Man, all of the glory and all of the praise can go to him. Amen? Amen. To him that loved us. Are you saved today? Do you know for sure? You can. If you'll repent of your sin, you'll put your faith in Christ. Not just are you religious. Not do you have a profession. Not do you claim things. Do you know him right here? And has your life changed because of it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, use your word. Father, I do pray for lost souls here today. That there would be a humility of heart and a willingness to humble themselves and yield to you. To find true peace in Christ through his blood. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ who loved us. Who was willing to step aside from his heavenly glory to humble himself and take on the form of a servant who is willing to suffer rejection, agony, loss in the temporal life to ultimately give his blood because he loved me. I can't hardly fathom it and comprehend it. And because of that, I have peace with God. True peace in the soul. Not a temporary feeling that some vice brings, but true peace, settledness, because I know I'm right with God but not because of something I've ever done. Only because of His grace. And Father, I pray for the lost one here today that they would finally yield and submit to You and be saved. Lord, I pray for the Christian, the church member, the saved individual. Lord, would You deeply impress upon our heart how much we owe you. And that we can love you because you first loved us. Accomplish your will. In Jesus' name, amen.